0: And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the multitude putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury, for they all contributed out of their abundance." But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, her whole living. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Trevor Hahn is 42 years old. He stands about 6'2", big, strong guy. He grew up in Fort Collins, Colorado, and he loves the outdoors, loves backpacking, hiking up in the mountains, whitewater rafting. I mean, that's just a, a great joy of his. But all his life, he has struggled with his sight. He had macular degeneration as a young child, and it continued to grow worse and worse. Up until 10 years ago, he was still driving. But in the last five years, glaucoma has set in and now he can no longer see anything but light, but he cannot see any shapes. I mean, he is he's blind. This made it quite a challenge in his life after being so very active and doing things. And he and his wife attended a conference in Fort Collins uh, more than a year ago now called No Barriers USA. And the whole idea was to try to help people with disabilities, find a way to push the boundaries, find a way to be able to do more than you think you can do to embrace life, to live life fully. It was while they were at that conference that they met a, a lady named Melanie Connect. Melanie is 29 years old, and she was born with spina bifida. Her legs have no feeling. They've never really developed her lower body and she's been in a wheelchair all of her life but her parents too loved the great outdoors and tried to make sure she could experience as much as she could in the outdoors in a wheelchair and she now is a very smart lady has her college degree and but is very limited in what she is able to do because of of her disability well they all met and they became friends and and it turned out that they invited Melanie to come to their home, Trevor and his wife's home, to be able to watch football with Colorado State University. They got together friends every Saturday to come together and watch the games. And so Melanie came and it happened to be a Saturday where Trevor was just a little discouraged and was discussing this issue of how he missed being able to go hiking up in the mountains. And while he was discussing this, Melanie had an idea and she said, look, you have the feet. I've got the eyes. Why don't we make a team and we could go start hiking? They thought, well, maybe that would work. Maybe that isn't such a crazy idea. So they started working on a, on a harness, kind of a backpack that Melanie could sit in and look over Travis's shoulder. And, you know, she is less than five feet tall by far because of her illness, uh, rather small in stature. And so Trevor was training, and Trevor was training. They were able to get out and start hiking, and they had to start practicing, because she would then be able to say, "Uh, there's a boulder on the left, Uh, there's a cliff on the right. (laughs) And they learned to develop additional language for how serious this was. Uh, On the right, it's a hospital. No, on the right, it's death. How do we kind of know just how serious this challenge really is? And she would begin giving him what to do. And he could use his sticks as they went along. They found they could begin navigating the trails pretty well. However, she didn't think about how important it was to watch the sticks overhead. They've run into more than a few branches, but they're getting the hang of it. But she's not supposed to just navigate. The whole idea is to be able to be up on the side of a mountain, and she begins to say, Trevor, we're up looking out over a valley, and all the aspen trees, they're turning gold and yellow. It is beautiful, they're on fire. Oh, there's snow on the mountain peaks. It's beautiful, white against a blue sky. She describes what she's seeing Things that he used to see that he can conjure up in his mind and he knows what it's like to be up on the mountain and looking out and seeing all those things. Their goal as a team is to actually hike a 14er. Now that is, you hike a mountain that is 14,000 plus feet tall. That's kind of the gold standard for being a hiker. Can you conquer a 14er? And that's what they intend to do together. It was Trevor who said, you know, when we're out on the trail, we both have a purpose. We have a responsibility to each other. And it was Melanie who said, you don't have to have feet and you don't have to have eyes to be able to hike. No, he's the feet, I'm the eyes. We do it together. We're the dream team. We're going to the top of the mountain. And I thought, that's what a Commitment Sunday is actually all about. It's about you and I coming together and each of us saying, I'm the feet and I'm the eyes. Together, we're the dream team and we're going to the top of the mountain. We do it together because each of us has something to be able to offer to the other that makes it work. This morning, I... I want to continue on with the sermon series, You Are Enough. For more than a month now, we've asked you to take a cup home and to start each day by saying, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. My cup overflows. It's the 23rd Psalm. So often we look at all that we lack rather than all that we have and how we have been blessed. My cup overflows. And out of those blessings, God is able to use me to do significant things, to make a difference, to live a life of meaning. Because you are enough. It's why I like our scripture lesson this morning, which is probably one of the more famous scripture passages in the Bible. The story we call it, The Widow's Might. You find it in the book of Mark. And it's a very short story, only four verses long. And it's a story about how Jesus and the disciples are in the temple and they're people watching. I kind of like that. They're in the temple watching people come by, placing their offerings there in the temple. Now, I like people watching. I mean, I like it. I, I, if I go to the mall, I guarantee you I've gone to watch people, not to go shopping. I'll let Marcia do the shopping. I'll go sit down and I'll watch the people. And it's sometimes fun. That's what Jesus and the disciples were doing. They were in the te- temple. They were watching people. And Jesus suddenly says to the disciples, Do You see that widow? She's poor. What she did was significant. Now I want you to stop and think about how the Bible was written. In Jesus' day, they didn't have paparazzi running around following Jesus everywhere saying, What did you just say? What did you just do? There were no iPhones to record everything. Today, you can't do anything without being recorded. Today, people know everything you do. You're on security cameras somewhere. You'll be on somebody's iPhone somewhere. No, we, we have lots of things covering what people do. If you were famous, the paparazzi is hanging on everywhere, everywhere you go. Not in Jesus' day. Now, after Jesus is crucified and ascends into heaven, it is 25 years. 25 years later, we believe Mark sat down and said, I think I'm going to write a a book that talks about the stories of Jesus. 25 years later. And a group of people start getting together, people who had been with Jesus, people who had seen the things He had done or heard what He said. And Mark said, tell me about what you saw. What did you hear? and he's collecting all these stories and then Mark has to decide what do I believe is the most important to write down. If you flip over to the book of John, at the end of the book of John, John writes in his, and these are the stories of Jesus. But they're not all the stories of what he said and did. If we were to write down everything he said and did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to hold it all. No, you can't write down everything. You've got to decide what's most important. So when Mark sat down with this material 25 years later to say, What matters? He included this short story about a widow and her gift in the temple. Why? Because she was someone who did not have position or power or great wealth. And yet Jesus wanted to say what she did matters. It was significant. She was enough. The disciples, they weren't people of power. They weren't people of influence. They weren't people of wealth. They wanted to hear this. Because everybody wants to believe that what they do matters. You are enough. I want us to think about the widow this morning. And there's just two things I want us to think about. I've always loved this story and I like to try to think about how a story comes together. Why did this widow go to the temple and make this offering? I don't know for sure, but I would think it's because she really was proud of her heritage to be a Jew to know that she was part of a family that goes back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, 1,500 years she was a part of this family, a part of this temple that was incredible. She wanted to be a part of something bigger than herself. She wanted to be a part of caring on something bigger than herself. She may not have had a lot of means or power or influence but that didn't keep you from being a part of this incredible family history of being a part of something bigger than yourself. You and I live in a world where we are encouraged, to let it be all about me, to say it's more than just about me. You know this last week was, it was an exciting and yet a disappointing week if you're a Houston Astros fan being born and raised in Houston I told you last week how I was cheering for my Astros growing up there in Houston and and you know what a strange World Series where the home team never won a game if you were the home team you lost and the sad thing was Houston had four home games So we lost by one, and it was a great series, and we did well, and, and it was exciting. But now that that is behind us, I can turn and focus on basketball, and I can focus completely on football, and, you know, I enjoy cheering for all my football teams, college and pro. I've always cheered for the Dallas Cowboys, and there are some others I cheer for, but I grew up in Houston. I always cheered for the Oilers, and now it's the Houston Texans. And it's easy to cheer for the Houston Texans right now because of their quarterback, Deshaun Watson. Not because Deshaun Watson is such a superstar, he is, but I cheer for him because he really is an amazing human being. I don't know what you know about Deshaun Watson, if you're a football fan or not and follow, but Deshaun Watson grew up in in Gainesville, Georgia, a little nowhere place, and his family was very poor his mom, his brothers, sisters, they struggled in poverty. It was Deshaun who was at elementary school and got some information about how to get a Habitat for Humanity home to qualify. And he brought it home and gave it to his mom and she began to read it and the family all got on board and they worked to qualify for a Habitat for Humanity home. Now it was Warwick Dunn, also a great running back in the NFL, who started a program I told you about, Home for Christmas, in which he would furnish homes like a Habitat for Humanity home for people who were getting this new beginning. And I mean, you know, you move into this home, well, how do you stock the pantry? What about a hose to water the grass, a lawnmower to mow the grass, or all these kinds of things? He provided all of that when somebody got a new home. And so this happened to the Watson family. Deshaun Watson was 11 years old when they got their home and he said, that changed my life. It changed my life because suddenly I had my own room. It could be quiet. I could study. I could get a good night's sleep. He said it changed everything. So much so that he began to excel in academics and he began to excel in athletics. You know, he's somebody who worked hard, but you also have to have a gift, a God-given gift. And he did. I mean, he had a God-given gift. And I'm playing football, he was outstanding. At the end of his high school career, he had multiple offers for schools all across America. And he chose to go to Clemson. Now, we can debate later the quality of that decision of going to Clemson. But he went to Clemson and he led them to a national championship game, which they lost, and then he led them to a national championship game, which they won. He was great. So much so that in 2017, in the very first round of the NFL draft, he was drafted by the Houston Texans. There was a different start at the beginning of 17. He then played last year, 2018 the Houston Texans became a force to be reckoned with and they were amazing. Well after the 2018 season Deshaun Watson decided he wanted to take a trip in many places around the world. He went with his quarterback coach um, and it was just the two of them Quincy Avery and Deshaun Watson began traveling. They went to London, England and then they went to Innsbruck, Austria And then they went to Milan, Italy. And then they they went to Beijing and to China, the Great Wall in China. Then they went to Egypt. He wanted to be able to see camels. From there, he went to Israel. And when he went to Israel, he wanted to go to the Jordan River. Now, you know, whenever we go to the Jordan, whenever we go to Israel with trips from St. Luke's, we always go to the Jordan River, and there you can have a service for the renewal of your baptism. As good Methodists, we don't believe you need to be rebaptized, but you can certainly renew the vows of your baptism and go through a, a service of baptism. And Deshaun Watson is already a, a good Southern Baptist, active in a Baptist church there in Houston, but he wanted to go through that renewal service. And so there was a pastor there, and he went into the Jordan to be baptized. And the pastor said, I'm baptizing you into a new season of your life. It is a new season of his life. And he does have power and influence and wealth. He was asked, why did you make this trip to go to all these places around the world? And I thought it was fascinating. Deshaun Watson said, you know, I grew up in Gainesville, Georgia. My family had no money to go anywhere. I wanted to go out into the world to see how other people live and how do other people think and what are the needs of other people so that I could put myself in their shoes. To put yourself in somebody else's shoes to understand what they think, what they need, what they fear. It's something because of his faith he has always been doing. He's just expanding his understanding. He's always done that because I've watched him before in a football game when he scores a touchdown. You know, now we get to have all these fancy dances back in the end zone. And, and they're fun, but I've seen him score the touchdown and he runs back to the railing around the, the stadium. Now, a lot of... Players do that, and they jump up on it, and people beat on them in order to celebrate with them. He didn't go back there so people would celebrate him. He would run back to it and hand the football to some young person there along the railing. Why? Well, he knew when he was a kid, if he'd been at the railing, he would have loved it if the quarterback would have handed him a football. You put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Now, when he came to Houston in 2017 for training camp, it was right after that that Hurricane Harvey hit. You Remember, Hurricane Harvey, two years ago, devastated Houston. I mean, the flooding, the winds, it was devastating to Houston. There were three women who worked in the cafeteria feeding the football team. And they lost their homes. They lost everything. And Deshaun Watson heard about it, And so when he got his first NFL paycheck, he went back to the front office and had them divided up into thirds and put it in an envelope and come back and give it to each of the three women. And we're talking thousands. And he said, you know, you take such good care of us. You're always helping us. I heard what happened and I just wanted to reach out and care about you. To put yourself in somebody else's shoes. To be able to realize the world isn't just all about me. And the more powerful you become, the more famous you become, the more the world tells you it's all about you. To be able to say, I want to be a part of something bigger than myself. For a poor widow, I'm a part of the history of the Jewish faith. I'm a part of the temple. I want to be a part of something bigger than me. And Jesus said what she did, that's significant. Two. You know, isn't it interesting as you start knowing the Bible stories, you start thinking about them in a certain way in your mind. I've been doing this 46 years. And I tell these stories. I've been telling this story for 46 years. And you get a certain idea in your mind. And and this week as I was working on this passage, I just started stepping back and thinking, why am I thinking this away? For instance, when I think about the widow's might, I think about a widow. I think of an older woman, maybe bent over, coming and dropping in her coins, very quiet, reserved, Maybe an unhappy look on her face, a sad look as she slips into the crowd. Just the way that I kind of saw it happening. When you read the scripture, it doesn't say that at all. It just simply says she was a poor widow. Now in Jesus' day, there were many young widows. Many young widows. Maybe it was a young widow who showed up in the temple. And she's standing tall and straight. And she comes to make her gift. And she's thinking, I am a part of the history of the Jewish family. And I am being a part of the temple. And she makes her gift. And she walks off with a smile on her face because she did something significant. Why wouldn't I ever think that? Just because you're poor doesn't mean you don't know joy. Or you can't be significant. That's the whole point of the story. I believe this lady was doing something significant and she had no idea the legacy that she was leaving. She came, maybe she was a young widow, and she comes and she makes her gift and she walks off with a smile. She never knows Jesus was watching her. I don't think the disciples jumped up and went and ran her down and said, Oh, by the way, do you know what Jesus just said about you? No. They would talk about it 25 years later. I remember when. Then we're going to go hunt her down. Because the gospel gets written 25 years later, this widow would never read the gospel of Mark and know she was included in the Bible. Have you thought about the fact that we don't even know her name? Nobody went up to go interview her. So who are you? No. She was someone who went and did something that was significant and Jesus said that was important. That mattered. We don't know her name and she has no idea the legacy that she has left. 2,000 years later, we're still telling her story. For 2,000 years, She has inspired people. She never knew it. I got to thinking, that's really what happens to us as a family of faith. You and I, when we have this youth program, and we bless our youth, and you touch somebody's life who's feeling bullied in school or feeling alone, and we're there to care and give them a vision for the future... Who knows what happens when they grow up? And then they have their own family and their own children who then it affects their children. Or our children's Sunday school class. As a part of a baptism yesterday and, and mom and dad had been teaching their little three-year-old how to sing every day Amazing Grace. Little three-year-old, she could sing Amazing Grace. And then we said the Lord's Prayer. She helped lead us in the Lord's Prayer. And I thought, she is going to grow up in a spirit of faith. This is going to affect who she is as an adult, which will affect her family, which will affect another family. We have no idea all of the legacy. I think about what we do in all of our after-school ministry and our mentoring. You bless a child who then is going to bless a child, their children. Who may change their children. You have no idea where it goes. Our mobile meals routes that we run, the people that we feed. I think you and I are about the business of sharing God's love and bringing hope in this world and we are creating a legacy of which we will never see the end or the ripple effect. But it's knowing that we are about the business of sharing God's love because we believe it is the right thing to do to be a part of something significant and knowing that God is going to use all of our efforts to truly help change this world. I was reading the story of a lady, uh, Kama Amanaga. Kama Amanaga. She was born in 1902 in Oahu. She was of Japanese descent. Right after she was born, her mother passed away. When she was 10 years old, her father passed away, leaving her an orphan. And she was living in a Japanese community, and they began taking care of her. One family would take her in and for a little while, then another family for a little while. Family one Finally, one family who was rather poor took her in, and she lived with them for a couple of years. But it was so hard with another mouth to feed, and it was a very difficult situation. It was a Methodist minister who came awa- became aware of Kama and actually got her into the Susanna Wesley Orphanage there in Oahu. And once she was there, it changed her life. I mean, now she had her own bed. Now she had clothes to wear, food to eat. She was safe and warm. But it was Reverend Daniel Kleinsfelter, Reverend Daniel Kleinsfelter, who was responsible in the Methodist Church for making sure that places like the orphanage were well taken care of, the kids were all being properly treated, and he would go around to these different kinds of ministries of the church. And he showed up one day at the orphanage, and whenever he would come, he'd always bring candy in order to kind of share with the kids some sort of a special treat. And he showed up that day, and he had the candy, and he's giving it to the kids, and boy, they're excited and grateful. But then he comes along and he comes to Kama to offer her some candy. And she straightens up and she was very calm and poised. And she said, no, thank you. I don't need any candy. I need a family. And Daniel stood there looking at this young Asian girl standing before him. And it was like he heard God speak. He got word to his wife that he was bringing a guest home for dinner. And thank goodness she didn't mind. And he brought home this 14-year-old girl. He had two daughters. And these three girls all hit it off together. And they hit it off so well, she never went back to the Susanna Wesley Orphanage. She continued to live with Daniel and his wife. And they would adopt her. They would legally adopt her. And so Kama grew up in this family. And now she really was in a safe, warm, happy place with a family. She went to school. She was able to do well. She grew in her faith. She became baptized. She became a Christian, joined in the church. She became a lady of faith and, and a lady of passion and smart. And when she was 20 years old, she went to a church social. And she met this man, Hirotaro. Hirotaro. And she said he looked so handsome and dashing. And he, he just really made her heart flutter. And they soon began to date. And before long, they were married. And it was a little more than a year later, they had a son. Now, they decided they wanted to name this son, both of them immediately knew, they wanted to name the son after Kama's adopted father. And so they named him Daniel not a very Japanese name, they named him Daniel. Daniel Inoue, Hiratara and Kama Inoue. They raised their son in a home of faith. He got a great education. They kept talking about how important it was to give back. He decided what he wanted to be when he grew up was an orthopedic surgeon. He started studying medicine, being involved in hospitals, And then 1941 came along and the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Daniel immediately went down to enlist. But if you remember the United States, we would not accept Japanese Americans into the service. We were afraid they would somehow support the homeland and not their country. And so we would not let him serve until 1943 and finally we agreed to let Japanese serve in the American forces and he was sent to Italy to some of the fiercest fighting. He served with valor and heroism and he had made it all the way through to the last sweep kind of near the end of the war and they were in a fierce fight and he was shot in the arm and it was so bad that they had to amputate his arm. When he came home There was no career as an orthopedic surgeon. The dream of his life was gone. And so he began to pray and try to figure out what to do with his life. And he talked to a friend of his, Bob Dole. Bob had served in the war. He, too, had been injured. And he said, I'm going to law school, and I'm going to become a politician. And Daniel, in a way, said, I think I'll do the same thing. So he went to law school. And in 1959, Hawaii was made a state in the Union. And suddenly you needed a a representative. And he ran for the House of Representatives and was elected to our House of Representatives. The first Asian American to ever serve in Congress. In 1962, he ran for the Senate and was elected. He would serve in the Senate for the next 50 years until 2012 when he died. The fascinating thing is while he served in Congress, the person he enjoyed working with the most was Bob Dole, of course. But remember, Bob Dole was a Republican. And Daniel Inouye was a Democrat. It was a time in history when we believed that all people could have ideas of which they loved their country and we could work together to do the right thing, to bless life. And that's what he did. He became president pro tem in the Senate, the highest ranking Asian American ever. He lived an incredible life. He did so much to bless people. And I look at all that Daniel in a way accomplished and I think, and who's the hero in the story? It's Daniel Kleinfelder. The man who stood before a young Asian girl and heard God speak. And he chose to act. And he had no idea the legacy that he was going to help leave. That's what we do. Because of a love for God, a love for His church, we make our commitments because we want to bless life. And we have no idea the legacy that we will leave in the years and the generations to come. But what you do matters. It is significant. You are the feet and you are the eyes. And together, we're the dream team. Going to the top of the mountain. Because we are enough. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.